0: One guest, ten songs, ten reasons. Music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. My guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love has worked in commercial radio for over 40 years, both on air and behind the scenes. In 1985, he was voted Britain's brightest breakfast presenter and since 2020 has been the breakfast show host in South Wales for Greatest Hits Radio. During his career, he's become an accomplished interviewer and documentary maker with major names such as Elton John, George Michael, The Bee Gees, Shakira, Shirley Bassey and many, many more. He's also a previous winner of a prestigious Sony Radio Award. I'm talking about Terry Underhill and with a long, busy and successful career to talk about, we'll hear from Terry after his first choice, which is from Little River Band. Terry Underhill, welcome to Radio Glamorgan Amusement Was My First Love.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Good to to be with you.
0: I've been on your show, now you're on mine. I think that's fair.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's good to be here.
0: Tell me about your first choice from Little River Band.
1: Yeah, it's a curious song because, uh, believe it or not, although you knew it straight away, Andrew, when I sent the list along and lots of people do. It wasn't a huge UK chart hit, no. uh, but you'll remember that in those days, uh, in, in the late 70s and, and, and actually before and beyond that, uh, radio stations would play songs regardless of their commercial success. And, uh, and this was one of them. And so every radio station just about when I was growing up was playing that song. And I remember the, the late 70s, I, I hadn't long left school. I, was, I had the whole world ahead of me. I was looking forward. And even at that point, because I was 15 when I first decided... Uh, that I'd love to work in radio or music in some way Um, and that song just seemed to uh, really the summer of 1978 for me uh, is completely wrapped up in that song and and when you realise it wasn't a big hit record it's unbelievable really yeah
0: Did you have music growing up at home?
1: Yeah, I think most people are influenced by their parents. And I I have to say, in my case, I think it was the other way around. Uh, There was music, but it was mostly the stuff that that I played. That being said, to this day, there are still uh, great songs, for example, by the stylistics that I hear, that I know were were my parents' choice of of song at the time. But I I sort of, I almost dominated the house. It was really interesting because uh, my late dad built a, 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 it sounds very grand, it was a foul disco deck Mm -hmm. in my bedroom, and the one that went through down through the ceiling into the kitchen and my radio show when i was 16 was actually could only ever go out in the evening when they were having dinner and so the timing of the show varied depending on how, how long it took my mum to cook tea uh, but that was my, that was my first sort of um, the foray into into radio although it was very low low key and so what I would do is I would play all these songs that I'd heard on my local radio station and other radio stations at the time. And whether they liked it or not, I was going to play them. And of course, many years later, you get to play them sort of professionally, yeah. which, is, which is great.
0: Which, so which broadcasters or, or DJs, as we used to call them, were you listening to that gave you that itch?
1: I think for me I was more of a I was always a local radio fan and uh, I grew up in Chester and the, the the local radio station for me was Radio City and in the, in the mid to late 70s there were only about five or six commercial radio stations in the country so the fact that in Liverpool which is sort of half an hour away from where I lived that there was this great radio station and there were presenters on there who I was really lucky to go to work with and, and, and get to know as the years went on but in particular a presenter by the name of Dave Lincoln Um, Dave actually went through the ranks and became the group managing director of of then EMAP, now of course Bauer, um, but was always a great broadcaster and it was many years later at Smooth Radio where I was a presenter at Smooth and Dave Lincoln was a presenter at Smooth and we'd we'd always known one another through the industry but just sitting next to him and telling him how some of the great songs he played, not least that one uh, which I think was his record of the week, although he couldn't remember but I could Hmm. um, and lots of Barry Manilow tracks and uh, and, uh, very early Elton John album tracks and so on that he championed and I just absolutely loved.
0: Your second choice is from an American singer-songwriter a lot of people will know as having recorded with and written for Phil Collins and that's Stephen Bishop tell me about the track you've chosen
1: now Stephen's somebody that I have really you talk about when I was a kid so one of my first jobs before radio was working in a clothes shop in my local town in Chester and there was a guy there called Dave Knox a real character everybody called him Knocker he was the manager and in fact he only died last year and he was just a brilliant character and he had at the time there were only three Bish albums Stephen Bishop albums and he had all three and he played them till he wore them out and had to replace them. And so whether I liked it or not, I was going to hear Stephen Bishop from the morning. The minute I went in in the morning to the end of the the day. And I absolutely loved Stephen Bishop. And the the story behind this particular choice of song, I mean, there could have been hundreds. Everybody, of course, knows on and on. Um, Everybody knows those sorts of songs that were hits, as you said, for Phil Collins. Um, But this song was was a Stephen Bishop song that was also featured in the movie Tootsie and the reason it's the one standout song it came out in 1982 and although my first uh, radio work was in sort of 79 80 at Radio City i didn't actually get my full-time contract doing a regular show until 83 so in 1982 i was actually working as a cinema projectionist at the Odeon in Chester and the big movie, which ran for months and months and months, was Tootsie. And uh, the way that it worked in the olden days, I sound like a, a, a real old guy <laughs> here, but the way it worked <laughs> was each part of the movie was on a huge reel, almost too heavy for me to lift, but I managed it. You had to lift them onto the onto the machine, yeah. onto the projector. And then every 30 minutes you had to live. It wasn't sort of any automated system. Computers, I don't think, knew <laughs> had even been invented in cinemas then. And what you had to do was close one, one of the projectors open the next a crucial moment and that moment in the film and if you watch it ever now and you see the little circle on the top right when it happened uh, that moment was just at the point where Looking for the Right One came on and uh, it was brilliant
0: Looking- started as an assistant on Radio City Hall at the age of 17 and then as a contributor to the youth show hosted by a man who left us way too early, Keith Chegwin. Now, Terry, he was a walking Duracell battery, so what was the experience of, of working with Cheggers like?
1: Well, you, you've got to remember that for me at the time, I was a kid myself. The show was called All Right Ace, which was a show all about... Um, it's really a magazine programme for kids. And in the old days, the, the, the Independent Broadcasting Authority insisted that radio stations did uh, lots of stuff that the BBC now do and were doing, which was sort of magazine stuff, which was great for me. And I was the roving reporter. Uh, Keith was the host, but this is where the story gets a little less exciting in some ways and a little disappointing for me, because uh, although we worked on this show for a couple of years, Years, uh, we never met oh, okay. um, because the the, the irony <laughs> being that that actually Keith at the time was was a huge star. He was on Noel's um, swap shop. Is the show called uh, Swap Shop, of yeah. course. So he was on the Swap Shop show. Lived in London, and so uh, nowadays we know, including this chat we're having, technology allows you to to do a, a, a radio show from anywhere at the blink of an eye. In those days, they had to book a line, and uh, we'd all go in. Me and the other two presenters would go in. Keith would be down the line from London, so. They'd book the line for an hour and a half, and we'd do the show for an hour and chitter-chatter between the bits, but that was about it, so we never actually got to meet, so uh, you can imagine how disappointing uh, for me that was uh, when he died. And that then brought you your own show
0: with the station, that must have been incredibly exciting, because I presume you'd had your heart set on that from day
1: one yeah I think when you get the, the the radio bug and you've got it, Andrew and probably had it as long as me if yeah. not longer you know the, the, when I was when I first saw an outside broadcast, I was fifteen years of age, and I at that moment turned to my my best friend at the time and who we actually met last year uh, and we talked about um, him remembering that I'd said i'm going to work on the radio and I was fifteen with no family of any sort of uh, media contacts or connections whatsoever, so it was quite quite a, a big a big sort of statement to make, but I was completely Determined, and um, and I just I, and what happened was when I got to Radio City as a volunteer working with legendary people like Billy Butler and Wally Scott. I mean, Billy Butler is a there's a huge name, and uh, I was basically his his runner for about a year and a half. Um, and then and then little things happened, like the the All Right Age Show and then they had a, a a weekly show where they reviewed new music and because I was such a young kid they they invited me onto that so every week I'd be the contributor on that and I think what I didn't realise was it was an apprenticeship so that the minute that the overnight show which of course is where everybody starts yeah. when that became available <clears throat> and I got the phone call to say you know we'd like you to do the overnight show I, I, I just simply couldn't believe it and. Um, and, and actually, you know, from that moment on, I've I've just loved the, the art of being on the radio and, and playing songs with people.
0: And what we're both doing uh, and what we've wanted to do since we were kids and in different circumstances, we're living the dream, aren't we?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I was telling a friend of mine who isn't in this industry the other day that, uh, you know, my life changed quite significantly, as did everybody's over the last 18 months. But in addition to the pandemic that everybody's been living through, um, of course, my my role within um, Wireless Group, which is now News UK and and was UTV, and as the group programme director there, uh, which amongst other stations included The Wave and and then Swansea Sound, um, that job was going to come to an end. And we knew that at the start of the sale process. Process. But what I didn't know is where I would end up. And so when I had a conversation with uh, with Gary Steen, actually at Bauer, and uh, and Gary and I were having daily meetings for about seven months, and uh, he said to me, you know, would you would you go back on air? And I actually said, and this, by the way, was prior to any thought of what I was actually being considered and was looking at something in the north of England, in Yorkshire. Mm. And he said, would you go back on air? And I said, well, I haven't done a radio show for nine years, which is the longest period of time in my entire career where I wasn't on air. Yes, I was working in radio every day. Yes, I was coaching and talking to and mentoring and being involved in radio, but I wasn't physically on air since 2011. Um, So I thought about it and I said, well, let me, let me, I'll do a pilot and see." feel so i went to my friend's house a guy called steve Fennell, who is the breakfast presenter at metro in in the northeast and he has a home studio so i went to his house and um we we said go in have fun see what it feels like within about 10 minutes i was back to the point i'd been nine years previously and thought i love this so of course it was very easy for me then to say to, to to gary yeah you know what i think i am ready to go back on air so when an opportunity is it did arrive um you know, in, in Wales, in South Wales, it was, a, it was a brilliant opportunity.
0: So forgive the cliche, but when you went back into that guy's home studio, was it like riding a bike? You don't forget?
1: It's funny because that phrase is, is a well-known one. My, my wife said to me when I said to her the day before, I said, I'm a little bit nervous. All I'm doing is going to my friend's uh, loft to sit in <laughs> his studio and, and talk to myself. And if it's terrible, nobody will ever hear it. Um, and she said exactly that. She said, it'll be like riding a bike, you'll be fine. And, uh, and and actually it was. And when I did my first live radio show, which was on the 1st of September last year, uh, as we launched Greatest Hits Radio in South Wales, that was, um, again, 10 minutes. And I thought, ah, yes, I, I, I think I can still do it. And it's funny because... You know, it's, it, it's really interesting how South Wales has been so important to me because I was the launch breakfast presenter for Real Radio in 2000 and then the only other commercial regional radio station to launch, of course, now is Greatest Hits Radio. Mm-hmm. And I was also coincidentally, and we've got to remember, this is all coincidence, I didn't plan this. I was going to take a, a year off and chill out and then maybe reinvent and do something maybe completely different. Um, so it was just quite a nice irony and it's been a, it's been a fun time.
0: Your third choice, Terry, is, I have to say, a classic song taken from a classic album and written and recorded by a total genius in his field. You a Stevie Wonder fan?
1: Yeah and, and uh, I've got a really interesting story about Stevie Wonder because I, uh, you, you will chuckle as will everybody I hope listening to this when I tell you that I that I did meet Stevie Wonder but it was the most bizarre of, of circumstances um, I was actually sitting, I was at a party and um, it was one of these record company parties and I was sitting on a sofa next to Betty Boo. Now you remember Betty yeah. Boo and she's quite gregarious and quite funny and we knew Stevie was somewhere at the party but apparently he wanted to meet her but unfortunately for him she was sitting talking to me <laughs> so, so Stevie walked over with his, with his people and, yeah. uh, and then we both stood up Betty stood up and I stood up and Stevie said uh, Betty Bo I really always wanted to meet you and, uh, and, and she said "Oh, nice to meet you Stevie and they had a little chat and she said "Oh, she said, can I introduce you to my friend Terry I'd only just met her <laughs> and then he and I ended up chatting and I got the opportunity to tell him just how special mm. this song really is to me Cause this time
0: Your first stint on breakfast was uh, on Wrexham and Chester's March of Sound in 1983. And even 40 years on, Terry, it's still every station's flagship show breakfast, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think things changed a little bit last year, Andrew, when um, people were getting up later, they weren't travelling into work, True, they were working yeah. from home, so there was a shift, and certainly research showed that the peak has always been 8.15, but the peak had moved to sort of 11 o'clock, uh, because people were just getting up later and not travelling. Um, that being said, I think there is there is something about breakfast. I was trying to calculate uh, over the years, because I, I, as you said, I did I mean, you've done your research, I, I did do breakfast for about four or five years um, at, at March, In the early 80s, and then I went to become the second ever breakfast presenter at Signal Radio from 87. Um, so I did breakfast at Signal for for, for a few years. So in a, uh, And then I went, of course, to do breakfast at Real Radio, uh, which I did for about eight years. So I was trying to work out, and I think throughout my career, um, I think probably about 17 years of that, probably 18 now because I've had another year just gone, has been getting up at sort of 4.30 in the morning. But I, I do love the fact that you're waking up as people are waking up. And there's a – I think there's a – I used to coach breakfast presenters into into how tolerant or or not people are in the morning. There's certain things that you just can't cope with first thing in the morning, and no. and that's been my tr- sort of effort is to is to try not to be too overpowering.
0: But has it changed? Because the, the style of breakfast is important because the idea is that you keep everybody with the station throughout the day. Now, when I the first voice that I ever heard on radio was Noel Edmonds. It was a funny show, made everybody laugh, followed by, uh, when he left, it was Dave Lee Travis, much the same. But that kind of broadcasting seems to have vanished a bit.
1: I think certainly stations um, like Greatest Hits Radio, for example, are, are music-led. It's, it's about the music of the station. It's about giving people a soundtrack, musical soundtrack, to their day. And it's about, for, for me, certainly, the show I do, if anybody recalls my shows on Real Radio, where we had James Rea doing the news, we had uh, Sarah Graham, who was my co-host, Kyle Evans on air as the producer. It was very much in that sort of vein. It was, it was a lot of laughs. A lot of competitions, a lot of fun we did you know all sorts of risk it for a biscuit competitions, and all the stuff that we did which was which was great fun, but I think that was a very different proposition to what to what i 'm doing now, which is you know the star of the radio station is not me, the star of the radio station is the music, and it 's about delivering the music um, it 's about just just getting people from A to B and making people feel feel comfortable. I always think about radio you know. Uh, listeners to radio don't know uh, how radio works. They don't know what makes good radio. They don't know what makes bad radio. They just know whether they like it or not. Mm, and, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm lucky in that, you know, you could call it uninteresting or bland, some, some of the radio that happens, because there isn't that standout talkability, that stuff that people are talking about tonight in the pub, if they could go. Um, but nevertheless, you know, we've, we've seen some incredible success already. And I think the music being the star of the station and having them, having the understanding to um, respect the music and allow that to be the most important thing on a show in itself I think it's a different type of skill to, to the sort of bells and whistles and competitions hmm. and, and, com- and comedy radio For your fourth choice
0: uh, Terry, I'm quite excited about this because we've made over 50 of these shows and it's the first time Kate Bush has appeared, it's her second single and the follow up to Weathering Heights tell us about the man with the child in his eyes
1: Again, you'll look, there's a theme uh, here because this again, late 70s uh, I loved Kate Bush, I loved, I loved all the, the sort of the, the, the first hit in particular Wuthering Heights the Bushka, the collaborative songs that she did as well but for me when you listen to the lyrics in this song and you listen and try and you can interpret it in your own way I remember uh, hearing Kate Bush talk about how this song can be for the listener whatever you want it to be mm-hmm. not necessarily what she wrote it as and she
0: was 14 or 15 when she wrote it
1: just, just a small girl, and and you know, which, by the way, you know, when you listen to the intricacy of this song, and you look at the world. I mean, this is an artist who doesn't have to tour, didn't have to promote, didn't do interviews, yeah. didn't do TV shows, wouldn't appear on Wogan or any of the big shows of the day because she didn't need to. Everything she had to say was was wrapped up in four minutes and seventeen seconds in a song like "The Man with the Child in His Eyes." He's here
0: again. She really is a genius, isn't she?
1: Oh, just amazing. I mean, everything she ever did, you know, even her non commercially successful songs were just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And it's why she's so collectible, so uh, intriguing, so interesting, and I think so successful.
0: And I thought it was very clever of. of I, I know she fought to get Wuthering Heights as the first single, but whoever the person was at EMI who made the decision. Uh, to follow up a song like that that nobody had ever heard before with a piano vocal is genius.
1: I think, especially in those days, yeah. you know, because the, the big production numbers were really the thing, and uh, I think the simplicity of that song is why it was uh, why it was so successful and so brilliant all these years later.
0: Your next choice, Terry, is from Mamas and the Papas. Why, in particular, California Dreaming?
1: Okay, well, I've always loved the song uh, from the first moment I heard it. It was already an oldie, you know. When I was a kid, this song was already really old. Uh, now it's, of course, positively ancient. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know why. I don't know why it's 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 so important. But it's become really important to me and to my whole family, in particular, my youngest daughter, uh, Nia, who's twenty five years of age now. And uh, we always sang it in the car. We always played it. We always talked about it. In fact, um, she wanted a record player a few years years ago and uh, I was really lucky because not only was I able to get her the record player but I was able to get her a vinyl version of this song oh. one of the original vinyl versions and for Father's Day it's quite emotional telling you the story because for Father's Day about three or four years later she managed to get me the entire lyrics of California Dreaming and it was all written in circle so it made up the record uh-huh. itself and she got oh, it yeah. framed for me so that's one of my, my prized my prized things that I own um, and then two years ago my wife was 50 and we, we went um, on a Sort of big celebration holiday for, for for her birthday, and we went to San Francisco. And I'd always had this dream, and actually my wife and lots of my close friends know this. I'd always had this dream. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, we watched the streets of San Francisco. There was lots of iconic yeah. shots of the Golden Gate Bridge, and I'd always had this ambition. And so I said to, to my wife, "You know what? Maybe we could. I know it's your birthday, but maybe we could realize my ambition." She of course wanted to do that and share that. And my ambition was that I wanted to drive over the Golden Gate Bridge in a muscle with the roof off, playing California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas. Oh. And I did it, and it was the most amazing experience of my life.
0: Music was my first love, exclusive to Radio Glamorgan. When I'm drinking my eating more than enough apple pies. Will I glance at my screen and see real human beings start to death
1: right in front of my eyes. So this is Terry Underhill on Radio Glamorgan choosing my favourite songs, and it's a great honour to be able to do so, and I could not play ten songs without at least one being from Gilbert O'Sullivan. In fact, all ten of them could be. <laughs> uh, but that song is just brilliant, nothing rhymes, and uh, there's a great story, actually, Andrew, if you've got time, I'll tell you a great story about Gilbert. Plenty of time. Yeah, I mean, basically, I'd been a fan of Gilbert O'Sullivan since I first saw him on Top of the Pops, wearing the the funny, quirky costume and the flat cap and playing the old uh, the old piano. Um, and I've always loved him, you know, all of his songs, even I Could Do, I Could Day, which was a comedy song. But yeah. I, I mean, all of his songs are great. Uh, What's in a kiss? All the hits. Um, and I had to choose one. I came up with nothing rhymed. But what happened was I'd always... Uh, you mentioned very kindly at the start of this how I'd done lots of interviews and had met lots of celebrities, lots of music stars and some, you know, real big top people. But I'd never met Gilbert and he was the one artist that I, that I would have always wanted to meet. And about three years ago, a friend of mine who works at Smooth Radio who knew uh, Gilbert's uh, daughter, actually, Tara, and he also knew how much I really, you know, love Gilbert, And uh, we got invited to see the show, which was great. We sat in the audience, watched the show. Everything was fantastic. Uh, what I didn't know was that afterwards of course we were going to go backstage, finally meet Gilbert uh, we had the most fantastic time, we got on so well uh, that actually and then Covid hit so it didn't happen yet but it will but uh, he then invited me to uh, go over to his house, he lives in Jersey yeah. and spend some time there to have a proper catch up which I'm looking forward to doing either later this year or next year but uh, it just goes to show that uh, you know somebody can be a, a superstar that you'll never ever meet to, to meeting them and actually being Absolutely, invited yeah. to their house so it was nice.
0: And will that be uh, just invited as a friend or will that be
1: to do an interview? No, no, just, just uh, as as a friend and just Lovely. to chat. I think in a way, I mean, he's done a few interviews now. He doesn't he like for, them. He, he didn't do them for years, yeah. but yeah, he has done a couple now. Um, but, but in a way, I almost saw it as a, an extension of a hand of friendship, in in, in a way. Uh, I, I actually wrote a, a blog on my website. I, I tweeted that I'd put this this um, this story, and it was actually the story about Gilbert O'Sullivan and how you know what he means to me as an artist, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I tweeted it out, and and within five minutes, Gilbert had t- had tweeted in reply to say, and, you know, the, the invitation to come over to the house is still there. You've got to come over. So you know, I, th- I think yes. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to say, oh, can I do an interview while I'm here? I just <laughs> I feel it might. It'd be cheeky I, I
0: th- I, well from things i've read about him or when talking about the media i think he would find it very cheeky yes so i think the idea is to go over and just have a great time with a mate
1: i think so i think so
0: so you i want to jump ahead a little bit you moved uh, in 1985 to signal radio breakfast which you talked about you then went back from where you came. So how did the management move come about which uh, if I understand correctly started in 2000 with the appointment of programme control as well as breakfast show host at Real Radio?
1: That will be the public um, perception of my first management role but in actual fact um, in 1985 uh, believe it or not, I was appointed, I think they called me Senior Presenter at Marcher Sound, which sort of gave me a little bit of responsibility, you know, to, to schedules and a bit of music responsibility. So I was already, um, a, I think, Senior Presenter at Marcher. When I went to Signal, it was actually 87, and when I went to Signal in 87, John Evington hired me there. But I wasn't hired, actually, to do, the, I was hired to do the breakfast show, but my, my role was Head of Presentation. So I was actually Deputy Program Director at Signal in 87. Um, and I stayed in that role right the way through till 95, where I then joined the MFM Marcher group back. I went back there as, as group programme director for their group of five, six stations in Wales uh, and one in, in Birkenhead. Um, so really, when in 2000, I was approached by um, John Myers, to go and work at um, Real Radio, I was already a program director. Right. So, 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 yes, yeah, so sort of right. So, it had been a, it had been a career that, that that had sort of quietly been programming, but also being on air, a player manager. I always described it as That's a good way of putting uh, it. Yeah, and I, and I think you know, the the and John used to bless him used to say this. You know, the, the, there's a theory, isn't there, that if if you're in charge. And you're doing a show, all the complaints are going to come to you. So, <laughs> <laughs> You know, you can sort of, you can almost plot your own future. Uh, I remember at Real Radio, I was able to make decisions in the middle of the show. You know, if we'd be doing a competition with a huge prize and I wanted to double the prize, you know what, I could just do that because hmm. I was also the programme director. It's a very privileged position and I loved every second of it.
0: So then you uh, became programme director and breakfast show presenter for Real Radio Yorkshire. Uh, including overseeing a successful news and sports service, uh, which won, as I mentioned earlier, a prestigious Sony Award. At the time, were you enjoying the management role as well as presenting?
1: It's funny because at Yorkshire, an opportunity for me to... uh, Basically, I was was completely exhausted because I was getting up, as I mentioned, at 3.58 every morning. I was driving then um, just under two hours to get to the radio studio to get there just before six o'clock. I was doing the breakfast show six till ten, coming off air, and as you said, a very complicated station. There was a lot of speech, special music uh, uh, platforms and formats, and there was there was about twenty five presenters, full uh, news team of nine people in news, um, and it was a massive job. And I'd often get onto the M sixty two to come home at six o'clock at night and come home at nine, and it was absolutely exhausting me. Yeah, I just I just couldn't um, I couldn't do it, and I just and I had a long conversation with John Myers and John Simons and said you know what, I I love both of these elements of the job, but I cannot do them both. I can do one or the other. And they they basically said that, and it was flattering and really lovely of them, and they said I could choose. You know, you can choose. You can either do the show... And we'll bring in somebody else or you can come off the show and you can become the programme director full time and not have to get up at four in the morning. And I have to say that the opportunity to come off air and to just run the station (laughs) was very appealing, Um, you know, and and that's, that's what happened. That's how that happened.
0: And it allowed you to recharge, didn't it, for what you're doing now, I suppose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I got used to running a radio station without being on air, and it's a different dimension. I think there's lots of benefits to, doing a radio st- to, to, to running a radio station and being on air. You see all the problems that presenters constantly feel. And when a presenter tells a non-presenting programmer there's an issue, sometimes they don't get it. Um, so I, I sort of understood that, and I, w- I kept putting myself in that position. Um, but actually, interestingly, I probably know more about Greatest Hits Radio now because I'm on air than I would ever have known if I was the programmer of it.
0: Oh, right, really? So
1: yeah, because you see, you see if the music. Well, you first-hand, isn't aren't you? Yeah, exactly. You see if there's a production element that doesn't work. You see if there's a technical issue that needs to be resolved, or you know, you, you see all that stuff. And uh, because I am, you know, at heart, I'm a programmer um i'm able to and, and i've still got such a great relationship with with gary and and the other guys that i am able to to share with them you know my uh my thoughts and and they are always readily you know uh, accepted and 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 you know and help i think the, the the growth of the station
0: and how did it feel for that small boy who used to present his own radio show when his mum was making supper uh to be a DJ winning a Sony Award. And, and as one thing I read, put it, seeing off Radio 4.
1: That was a really special night. And, you know, I, I, I was the programme director at the time. I have to give all the credit to James Rear. James, who you may know, runs Global. Um, but he was the guy that had this wonderful news vision and uh, and drove it through. And, in fact, so successful that he then took that to LBC and now became the, the group programme director, as you know, for the whole of Global. Um, but it was a wonderful feeling, you know, when 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 you when you are part of a team and and I was just a small part of it, but when you're part of a team that gets recognised in any way, it it always feels great. And I have to say that um, there've been a few pinch yourself moments. Usually actually For me, usually when I've just interviewed or met somebody who is just, oh, my God, you know, I can't believe I just Mm -hmm. did that or they'll send a note or you'll hear a comment back or, um, you know, I I, I did. I could have included so many artists on this, but, you know, one of the artists that I had a particular um, very special feeling after I'd done the interview was the Bee Gees. And uh, I I did one of the last interviews with Barry and Robin Gibb, um, but they hadn't spoken to one another for five years and um, they came together and they were very nervous because the last interview they'd done I think you may recall was with uh, Clive Anderson Yes, I saw that Yeah, and Barry stormed off set and said he'd never do an interview again and five years later I was actually hired by their record company to interview them just to let them realise that it can be okay Mm. and uh, I went into the room with Barry so they hadn't interviewed hadn't done any interviews for five years they'd not done anything since Morris had died they'd fallen out I didn't know that but they'd fallen out spectacularly and I went in and did the interview and um, I was told, don't talk about this, don't talk about that, don't talk about the other. And I'm thinking all the things that <laughs> everybody's interested in, they told me not to talk about. And, uh, and I thought, you know what, yeah, I was getting paid to do the interview, but I thought if they say I'm not going to pay you because you've blown it, I don't care. I'm going I'm to ask these questions anyway. And Barry and Robin were just amazing. At one point, Barry turned around and said, this is like therapy. We're saying things to one another now that we've never said before. <laughs> And then um, it, it, about seven or eight months later, I was at a, I was actually at an awards event in London at the, at the Grosvenor um, Hotel in London. And I was literally walking was on my way to go to the, to the gents and walking towards me was Barry Gibb. And he, he was on his own. I was on my own. And he stopped and he said, how are you? I said, I'm good. Uh, and he and he and he was really positive and so so complimentary about that day uh, that we'd done the interview. So that goes down as one of the one of the big highlights. That's really you know, When I would pinch myself and say, "Oh my God, if my grandmother would know now," that, <laughs> well, you know, the sort of things I'm doing. Mm.
0: You're listening to Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love with Andrew Wolfe and Terry Underhill playing ten of Terry's favourite songs. The brilliant Doobie Brothers for your seventh choice, Terry.
1: Yeah, and for no reason, you'll love this, and this will keep it short and sweet, for (laughs) no reason other than I absolutely love the song. It's one of my favourites. It's always been a song I turn up loud when it comes on the radio. (laughs) It's one of those songs that feels good at any time. You know, yeah. I think it's the summer, the winter, the autumn, the spring. It's just a, a really great feel-good song. I love it.
0: A final word on management. Uh, you've been very successful with that. Uh, in 2008, you were part of the launch team for Smooth Radio. Uh, you led Real Radio to record-breaking audiences and many awards. But given the choice now, and, and it's interesting listening to you because I'm not sure what the answer will be, You were broadcaster first, an executive second, or the other way around?
1: Andrew, I, I, I honestly, it, it's, you can't guess the answer and I couldn't tell you the answer. I really, really don't know. There's so many great rewards when you are able to run a radio station and have a fantastic team. I've worked with some amazing broadcasters uh, and there's such a great sense of achievement as a program director, seeing that success and seeing other people shine. Uh, but then there's also this great, I mean, one of the things I think I would say that is, has been so important to me has been the 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 interviews, the music interviews, because... They've just, I mean, they've, they've just been things that I will never forget, they've, you know, and the audio I've got and the, the, the stories that I've been told and the, and the things that have been shared with me, um, you know, were just, I, I suppose if you wanted to say what would my favourite part of what I've done be, it would, without question, um, doing those huge, huge interviews, um, no question, uh, but, I, but then in terms of being on air or being a programme director, couldn't tell you.
0: No. I want to ask you a bit of self-indulgence here, I want to ask you about one of my broadcasting heroes um, who I've tried unsuccessfully to make contact with for this show, and that's Simon Bates. Uh, In 2001 you got to work with him on the coverage of William and Kate's wedding, and that was coverage that I read got a lot of plaudits.
1: Yeah, I mean S- Simon and I. I mean this is another example, Andrew, of, of growing up. And when I grew up, Simon Bates had eighteen million listeners listening yeah. to his morning show on Radio One. I you was one and I of them. Were both we were there. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll remember so many things about what he did. And of course, he's got a very um, he's got a, a reputation for being a perfectionist and doesn't you know sort of like anything that isn't perfect. Um, I don't and think he I suffers was, fools. I think that's exactly the phrase, and I've seen, I've seen some examples of that. Um, but I don't know what it was. I, I, I've i got a suspicion of what it might be, but I was asked if I would um, co-host, unbelievable really, Mark Goody tech tech optic for us. Simon Bates was um, with me outside Buckingham Palace. Um sorry can I go Sam? back a bit tech opted I, I know it's crazy isn't it Mark oh. so the, so the wedding took place oh, the technical
0: I about, operator i was trying to work out what you meant sorry Yeah 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 it was
1: te- technical <laughs> right. operator he was he was in the studio driving the desk right. while while Simon and I were out at Buckingham Palace doing the show James Rea was the producer and I was asked if I would do it and, I, and and the way it was described to me this was before I really knew Simon I'd met him a couple of times but nothing to no, no sort of proper not knowing him at that time and um and what happened was that I was asked if I would do these links to paint – the way they described it was paint a bit of colour uh, to try and sort of be on the mall and, and, and so on. And we started at 6 a.m. and I think we finished at 1 p.m. So it was like a really long marathon mm. broadcast. And, um, and at 10 past six, Simon crossed to me. Uh, and I wasn't ready for it. But So he said, you know, so we've got Terry Underhill's on the mall. Let's cross over. Terry, what can you see? So I did what every broadcaster does. I started to paint pictures with words. And I t- told the story of I've bumped into families from Australia, from Indonesia, from Africa. I've met people from America, from Australia. you know. And I told the story of I, I can see a sea, a mile-long sea of red, white and blue as people are ready for this most magical day. That was it, as far as I was concerned. Thank you, Terry. That was it, as far as I was concerned. But it turned out, because he told me afterwards, that he thought that that was almost an audition. And if (laughs) I'd been terrible at that, he wouldn't have included me very much at all. You may have had the odd snippet from me. As it turned out, we co-hosted the entire show, almost every link I was on. brilliant. And we became friends. And in fact, on that day, this is what kind of a really, really nice guy is, so any of the stories that people sometimes hear. On that day, I, I had been staying over the night before, um... But getting the train back, I had no idea how I was going to get there. You couldn't just call a taxi. Whole of London was closed down. I had this really heavy bag that all my stuff was in and another bag that my, my other kit was in. And Simon said, come on, I'll walk you to the Tube. I'll show you how you can get back. And he carried, it was a really beautiful day, you might remember, he carried my heaviest bag all the way to the Tube, got me on the Tube. And from that moment on, we've been terrific friends. And he is, he's a really, really lovely person.
0: I, um, I had Johnny Beating on the show and I told him this and he burst out laughing, but... As a 16-year-old, all I wanted to do was to host his show. I used to pretend in my head when he was on holiday that I was sitting in for him. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, if you remember when he went on holiday, they had people like Phil Collins and real big yeah. stars used to cover yeah. for him. I mean, yeah, I can imagine why Johnny would chuckle at that and I think Simon would probably chuckle at that as well. He's a, you know, he is a very, as I said, he's he a perfectionist. I think if I had blown it on that day, I think I probably wouldn't be saying these things about him. No. But we just happen to get on and, um, and he's, he will often, if you, if you see us on Twitter, he'll often, you know, have some banter with me on Twitter about various things and uh, in fact it's funny enough We I had a text um, I was out with a, it's interesting you should say this um, I was out with another radio friend of mine about two or three weeks ago just after you were allowed to have a beer outside yeah And he was telling me something similar about Simon and uh, what he means to him and how important he was and blah, blah, blah. So whilst I'm at the pub, I'm texting Simon um, to say I'm out with his friend and uh, he's saying some really great things about you. Hope you're well. And Simon rang me. (laughs) Put me on the phone. Put me on the phone. Mm. (laughs) And he had a 10 minute chat with my mate, and it was just great.
0: Brilliant. Tell me about your eighth choice, Terry, from Art Garfunkel.
1: I mean, a song I've always liked. Remember it coming out. Remember Watership Down, of course. But inspired to suggest it because, I mean, it's a real name dropping slot, this, because um, I did a, a really nice documentary with Mike Batt. And uh, Mike, of course, wrote this song. And, uh, and he was telling me, uh, you know, what the brief was and why the song came about. And I just think Art Garfunkel's vocal on this is just exquisite.
0: Right Radio broadcaster and executive Terry Underhill is my guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love. I get very excited, Terry, when someone chooses the subject of your ninth choice uh, because I am a massive and in my younger days, I have to say, obsessed fan. You a Luther fan?
1: Oh, goodness. I mean, I talked earlier on about my, my website. There's a blog there. Uh, if you get a chance to, to check it out, Andrew, as a Luther van Ross fan, I think you'll find it fascinating. I'll tease you by saying that the subject is something like the night I met Luther and Mariah. <laughs> um, and it was—it's an interesting story, but y- you, you can check it out on the, on the, on the, on the website. It's—it's—it uh, it's, was a—but put it this way: everything you would hope he would be, he is and was. A chair is still a chair, even when there's no one.
0: A voice of pure silk.
1: Absolutely incredible, isn't he? Wonderful, absolutely fantastic. What a legacy to leave behind as well, that great musical repertoire.
0: And if you haven't seen it, have a look on YouTube of uh, Luther singing that to Dion Warwick.
1: I, I have seen him yeah. <laughs> about a thousand times. Yeah. I love how he does the, the riffs in the middle as well, which yeah. is just fantastic, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's just, great. He, he was just amazing. And yeah, there's, a, there's a story I'll tell you that isn't on the on the blog. Uh, Luther Van Dross um, was signed for years to, to CBS Records yeah. and then Sony Music. And a friend of mine, Terry Doherty, who, uh, who's worked in the record industry for years, and she was the head of one of the divisions there, and she told me a great story about Luther Van Dross because whenever he was in town, he all brought her a present and she said often she wouldn't know that he was in London and she'd be sitting at a desk and all she'd hear uh, down down the hallway was his wonderful voice singing Terry where's my Terry mm-hmm. and he'd go in and, <laughs> and give her a beautiful a Chanel scarf or a Hermes scarf or something and He was always kind to her and, uh, and as I say that, that that night I met him was it will be something I will never forget for the remainder of my life
0: do you think he's um, amongst a lot of soul singers that are no longer with us do you think he's forgotten I mean, obviously not by his legions of fans, but just he's. I'm so glad Radio 2 did a show about him for his 70th birthday. But I just sometimes I think he's underrated.
1: I, th- I think you know he—he's definitely not forgotten by anybody who ever heard any of his no. songs. So, you know, and actually, even if you listen to "Never Too Much," which is not the the most balladic song, I think that for me it's hard to answer because, as far as I'm concerned, he is just an icon that will yeah. be up there with Michael Jackson yeah. and all the other superstars that are are no longer around. In fact, you know, this is such an impossible task because I was just listening to that song and looking at the artists that I've missed that I could have chosen: Elton John, Phil Collins, mm-hmm. Barry Manilow, Michael Jackson, Mick Jagger. Rod Stewart and of course Tom Jones I mean all of them I could do this again and choose (laughs) songs from each of those artists so it's it's very difficult to say this is the definitive 10 songs but they were 10 that I've got some sort of special connection to
0: well one very final word on Luther I had on the last series of music was my first love I interviewed Lee John from Imagination and he was at a party that was put on by Luther's record company a promotional party for an album or he was here on tour um and Lee John was introduced to him and he, he didn't think Luther would know who he was and he says, This is Lee John from Imagination and Luther started singing Just an Illusion and the two great. of them were singing it a cappella. Isn't
1: that great? Uh, that sounds it? fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And Lee's, Lee's another good guy. Lee with three E's, he's another yeah. good guy. Um, you know, who who I think was underrated and I think that band only a couple of big hits, but everybody knows them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Your final choice, Terry, on this edition of Music Was My First Love, is from the late, and uh, it's not an understatement to say very much, Miss George Michael, a man who left, again, a wonderful catalogue. Why this particular track, I Can't Make You Love Me?
1: So, I mean, I had to play a George Michael song because, again, um, you know, you, you may know this or not, but, uh, but George Michael didn't do a lot of interviews. He no. really didn't. There's a very small number of them out there. Uh, but I was lucky enough to spend 45 minutes with him and had the most fantastic afternoon, after which uh, he sent a note to the to the record company to say how much he'd enjoyed the interview. So that meant a lot to me. But this particular song is because well before George ever recorded it, I'd always loved it. It was always one of my favourite Bonnie Raitt songs. Uh, who of course wrote the song and I used to do a late night show uh, f- forgetting the breakfast shows for a second I used to know, uh, do a late night show called Tears on Your Pillow where we play the most wonderful romantic love songs and you know, tell stories about people's lives that maybe people are going through tough emotional uh, and maybe in some t- cases non-romantic times and this song became a real classic on that show and i remember even playing it on overnights on radio city so it was always a a very special song the minute george michael recorded it and in my opinion you can rarely top the original but in my view he did and i just absolutely loved his version The, the lyrics are incredible the sentiment is amazing his voice is incredible and who could argue with a song called i can't make you love me if you don't
0: you've had a very long and very successful radio career terry both in front and behind the microphone as you look back over the last forty odd years, is there one thing in particular that you're you're proud of more than anything else?
1: Uh, probably that I'm still, I'm still doing it. <laughs> That's the answer I get all the time. <laughs> yeah, probably that I'm still actually able to, to, to do it and enjoy it. You know what? Be, there would be too many things, uh, you know, to single one out. It's, it's, it would like, it, if you said to me, which of your two daughters are your favourite, it would yeah. be as difficult as answering that question. I think all the incredible people, I mean, the people I've met and worked with, I'm not talking about celebrities, I'm talking about people who get up every morning and their whole life is dedicated to providing great radio and those people I think are, are, are the most wonderful thing of all
0: It's been lovely chatting with you and listening to your song choices Thank you Terry
1: Thank you Andrew for the opportunity and I will-
0: You're listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan and Terry Underhill has been choosing ten of his favourite songs. I'm Andrew Wolfe and join me again soon to hear another guest choose ten of their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love. Music of the future